How's it, everyone? Welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm half of your hosts, Nicholas Lawrence, joined by the other half of us, Gabriel Krauser. Greetings. And uh, we are coming to you live from, well, not live, but recorded from December. Uh, it is the end of what has been a long and weird year. Um, it's a year that I'm probably going to remember for a long time. And yeah, we're going to do, uh, I think, a little roundup of just kind of what we thought of the year, where we think things are going, all that sort of stuff. Um, Gabriel? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I suppose uh, I want to start out by by pushing back against what I think is likely to be one of the emergent patterns, which is to take, you know, whenever there's a there's a major communal experience there's a tendency to to reduce it so good year bad year or something like that and i can see on facebook a lot of guys being like oh my god can't wait for this year to be over it's been the worst for everyone um i don't know you know i think i think uh part of me just intellectually uh gets frustrated by things like that uh and he has an interesting story so i was uh in the northern free state uh going to an end of year uh school party in fact i went to a couple like a prize giving primary school prime prize giving and a pre-primary school sort of just semi uh like it was called chef's night and basically they got the kids to prepare some food and they filmed it and then no one could possibly eat that food but then everyone gets together <laughs> and then watches Lovely. the filmed version of the kids making the food and then uh and then eats actual food so that was great and there was and there was an especially delightful thing because what they'd done in that community is that uh they'd raised some money to help support the school uh while school fees weren't being paid because you know kids weren't attending school that's sort of very low cost private schools and to help raise money one of the things that they did was uh get a cow competition going so a couple of the big beef farmers around there each donated like one or two calves. And then uh, you put the calves, you know, someone donated a stretch of his felt. So the calves could all go graze there. And then after a few months, you see which one is the biggest and that guy wins a prize and which one's the best looking and that guy wins a prize. And the prizes are just a banner, um, you know, a ribbon. And then they slaughter the cows, they sell the cows to, to a slaughterhouse and that money uh, you know, I don't know, 60 grand, 80 grand, 100 grand, whatever it is, that goes to paying uh, teachers' fees at a primary school and a pre-primary school. So that was really cute. But they were explaining all of this in Afrikaans while these images were just showing up where the kids had just been cooking on the screen. And my fiance Elena, can't speak Afrikaans. And she... <laughs> she thought she that the She was somewhat cows, confused, was she? That they were showing... <laughs> she was like... This is children's school dinner. Now cows are on screen. Is is the, is that the cow we are going to eat? Why are we? <laughs> so a bit of a culture shock, bit of a confusion. Anyway, so I go outside and I chat with one of the farmers to take a smoke break. And he explains to me he he's a pretty small farmer, a couple of hundred hectares. Really had a few really bad years. And the soy price has finally gone up um, because of dislocations to the supply chain uh, and and 
and usually when the soy price goes up, it's because there's a bumper harvest. So you, you, you've, uh, sorry, usually if you've got a bumper harvest, the price goes down. Supply and demand, yeah. right? You know, if there's lots more supply, then the price comes down. So if you have a good harvest, the yeah. price is low. a good crop uh, cool, uh, and, uh, and a good price at the same time. Yeah. So, but he was mm. fully aware of the fact that like a lot of people have really suffered. And we only got to that part of the conversation because we'd spent sort of 15 minutes talking about how much of the country had suffered. But he said, you know, ironically, my business has, has done very well this year, the best in a decade. And he explained that to me. And then he said, it was like a bitter good year. A, bitter, mm. a bitterly good year. And I think for some people, some people have had a bitterly good year. And I think that everyone in the media uh, should be frank about the fact that they've had a bitterly good year if they have. And, I th and, and in the news media in particular, uh, so many people have spent so much more time attending to the news than they usually would. Um, right. Largely because of the virus, that it's been good for revenues. It's been good for, you know, caring about the body politic and 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 so on. Yeah, so also, yeah. also passions are much higher now. I think uh, you know, sort of the stress put on the society has made people more excited. And when people are more excited, that also drives them to 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 read the news. It's like a, you know, the, these things to read news and make news to to and to, to give money to violent news. protests and to give right. money. You know, it's like on right. all sides. Uh, I think it's I think it's just very silly to pretend that everyone's um, business has done poorly this year. And I'm, from a personal side, yeah, I, I spent months and months with my mom and my sister and her partner and their kids and my fiance in a farm, and uh, you know, seen lambs give birth, seen baby lambs get killed, <laughs> seen uh, uh, crops get harvested, and now seeing them get planted. You know, it's so been cool, like it's been a very interesting experience and, and a very loving and beautiful experience in that family context that I would not have been able to have otherwise. So from a professional point of view and a personal point of view, I'd be lying if I said that it was a terrible year. I think better to say it was a bitter goeie jaar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I feel a little bit the same in the sense that, uh, you know, while I haven't terribly enjoyed being you know, sort of mostly isolated. Um, I'm naturally pretty good for this kind of entirely online life. And so, uh, you know, for me, it wasn't as difficult as it was for some people. Um, I had friends who, you know, they, they weren't hurt that much financially and that kind of thing, but sort of psychologically and socially, they really suffered through this year um, just because it disrupted their, their entire pattern of life um, in a really uncomfortable way and they got lonely and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think I think the I think it really does vary from person to person um, how, how this year went. Although, we'll say um, that I do think my sort of thesis at the beginning of this lockdown thing was that, uh, and then the COVID and all that, was that the next decade is going to be one of a lot of disruption, change, and probably some kind of conflict. I think that. Uh, things that were kind of bubbling away are now kind of starting to be set in motion, things like the conflict between the US and China um, or, or, the, or the larger liberal world and China. Um, I, I, I see changes, you know, there are all these changes to the economy that people have been predicting forever, like, uh, you know, retail becoming more online and uh, things like movie theaters disappearing. Um, those trends have definitely been accelerated. 
And so, you know, I think the next decade is going to be, I guess, more exciting. And I use that in both the good and the bad sense. Uh, yeah. Then, then last, then the last decade we had, which I think we will look back on as probably quite a boring time. Actually, uh, it'll be one of those decades which your history books are a bit flat on, maybe. Yeah, I don't know about that. Eh, I, I think that, I think the last decade was was huge. Um. So okay, so let's do a little. Let's do a little bit of. Let, let's do a lo- little bit of last decade uh, just to sort of get around the, the last year issue. And by the way, I think in the last year, one of the hugest uh, losses has been the credibility of the, much of the world's major scientific institutions. But in the last decade, the great patterns to track in the Anglosphere are the rise of uh, new illiberalism. So... You know, 1989, the Berlin Wall falls. By 91, 92, the Soviet Union has collapsed. The color revolutions uh, sprinkle around Eastern Europe. And Fukuyama writes about the end of history. Basically, the idea is that uh, the concept has been proven. The, the, the best way to get the most people, the most satisfied, is through a combination of uh, rule of law rather than of, of men in particular, uh, but persons in general, uh, a, a democratic system to determine what the law is, and free markets to allocate scarce resources. And uh, that's not to say that there weren't huge question marks around the extent to which a tax regime should be progressive or regressive, the extent to which uh, tariffs should be allowed for anything at all, and so on. There definitely were question marks about uh, you know, the gay marriage, all kinds of civil liberty issues. But but the general idea seemed to be clear. You want pretty regular transfers of power through a democratic system. You want the rule of law, quality before the law, and, 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 and a largely free market system to allocate goods and services. And, and, that, and that idea seemed to hold up for most of the 90s. And I would argue for most of the 2000s too. Uh, and yeah, you can look at, various studies and they sort of show the the increase in you know what you might call liberal democracy uh around the world so that's countries going from being autarkic or or dictatorships to having some form of uh liberal democracy and also countries that have a nominal liberal democracy becoming more real in that sense more real freedom of the press more real political competition more real free market access and that starts to reverse in a way one of the great turning points is the Arab Spring, which uh, is this moment of promise where one of the right. regions that is dominated by autocracy uh, is, you know, their, their major revolution revolts. And, and it Middle really East. catches it catches everyone off guard, right? Because it starts with this Tunisian shopkeeper or hawker, basically, uh, setting himself on fire because the government was messing with him. Um, yeah, he wanted to of, sell his stuff and they were like you need a license and he was like oh my right. god I, and they were harassing him and harassing him and he just couldn't get it yeah because it was all bribes and corruption and you know all the dysfunction of autocracies yeah so it, it that really catches everyone off guard and i think the the world the, the liberal world really doesn't know how to respond to it because like there's some it's very disruptive of course um and then there's some interventions by the americans uh obama kind of 
is a little bit is is quite soft on the rebels in Egypt. Uh, they helped the rebels in Libya overthrow Gaddafi. Uh, Syria, uh, uh, at first, foreign powers don't really get involved until the revolution looks like it's about to overthrow the the guy Bashar al-Assad and then um, the dictator of of Syria, and then uh, the Iranians step in and save him. Um, and then the the you know it, it, the Syrian and the Russians a and the ground. Americans get involved right. and they all try yeah, and stop the ISIS. Turks and yeah and it becomes yeah. it becomes really complicated, um, and that but, of course it, you know what goes yeah. on there sets off chaos in Iraq as well. So the current round of chaos in the Middle East is really all does stem from the uh, uh, the, the Arab Spring from for a lot of boys. Spring. And so, and so, the two things to note are: firstly, the Arab Spring. You have this promise that uh, autocracy or dictatorships will be replaced by freer democracies, and the reverse happens. And secondly, you create right. a huge millions and millions of refugees fleeing war-torn zones, who then uh, burst through into Europe, which triggers a realignment of European uh, of the European Union as the Germans decide that we are going to let these guys in and then try and distribute them around, that creates huge ructions with the Hungarians, the Austrians, um, the some of the Italians, the Poles, uh, and, and that in turn triggers the rise of sort of populist right-wing movements throughout Europe. That, of course, feeds somewhat into America. At the same time, the big story in the U.S. starting in 2008 is not only the election of Barack Obama, in 2007, he becomes president in 2008, but then also the, the global financial crisis where America's sort of uh, attempt to buoy the the housing market, the government's attempts to do that have, have created toxic debts. The big banks' attempts to make profits off of that has, has created a systemic risk which puts the world uh, world's economic, economic growth on hold. And the answer to that ends up being no big bankers go to jail. Uh, the, the laws aren't changed in a, in a way that seems to address the root problem. So you, again, it seems like after 2007, 2008 global financial crisis, there might be a reset in terms of uh, the management of, of, of financial institutions. Uh, but that doesn't turn out to happen either. In some senses, things just get worse because the Central Bank of America, the Central Bank of the UK, of Europe, of the EU, of uh, of Germany in particular, um, and of of Japan, they all end up printing so much money, effectively keeping interest rates so low uh, that that they create a bubble which is one day going to burst. So again, you have this huge problem. The global or, financial or as crisis. The, uh... As the internet meme said, reform, it makes it makes it just delays the problem to be something worse. Yeah, sorry. Right. Well, as as the internet meme says, no, no, you can't you can't just print money. <laughs> Printing machine go brr. Yes, <laughs> but, exactly. That, that was so, the story of economics in the last decade. <laughs> so 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 th on those two big sides on the on the politics of the Middle East, things look like they're going to get better. They get worse on the politics on the economics of. Uh, you know, Anglosphere and European and, and Japanese monetary policy things look like there's been a disruption. They could get better after the disruption. They actually just get worse in a sense. Uh, there's another big trend, which is that China looks 10 years ago like it is en route to, to, to proper reform. Uh, Xi, uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping's oh. reforms of 1978. Right. Uh, 
creating free markets in China have translated into the fact that once upon a time, no businesses were privately owned. Now 50% of businesses are privately owned. It was the case that only 50% of housing was privately owned. Now 95, 99% of, of housing is privately owned. And with that has come economic growth between 8 and 13% every year for three decades. But uh, 700 million people have been lifted out of poverty. It's one of the great good news right. stories. By bringing in the free market side, China's gotten ahead. Now the question is, is it going to in introduce the democratic competition side? Right. And there's and things, reasons and to things. suspect that it is rolling over. It's turning over power. Its leadership is changing hands on a fairly frequent basis. It's getting a bit corrupt, but reform comes in to deal with the corruption. That seems to be working. And yet, in the last 10 years, Xi Jinping becomes dictator for life. His right. thought becomes part of the constitution. Uh, so again, uh, it and, looks- And he does things like like reestablish the cult of personality and remove term limits for himself and stuff like that. So he he has he has taken on some of the parts of China from pre uh, Deng Xiaoping. Now, the next thing to look at is the social side, esteem economic side. Uh, 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, it looked like the non-racial um, esteem team, for want of a better term, was winning. It looked, it, 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 it started to become normal to just think that, you know, black people can be excellent, black people can be useless, white people can be excellent, white people can be useless. Like, you just, you just there's, 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 no matter what race you look inside of, you're going to find a whole wide variety of people and you can judge them as individuals. Uh, or you can, you know, sort of pin their prestige onto their country or onto their religion or onto right. some particular culture that they espouse but that this, this sort of race game of thinking you know one person's achievements go for everyone who happens to have the same phenotypes that idea seemed to be dying out and in particular uh, black people uh, seem to be uh, excelling in ways both here and abroad that 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 put the lie to the old white supremacist idea and also put the lie to the sort of old black consciousness idea that, that we have to all stick together. It seemed like, no, well, in, individuals are making their way and, and, and it's doing really well, but by, and Barack Obama's achievements seem to be the, the sort of ultimate exemplar of this. You know, he didn't really campaign as being a black person. You should vote for me because I'm black. That was not his line. He resisted that line. Other people uh, did punt it, but it didn't seem to be the deciding factor. The deciding factor rather seemed to be that Americans were very irritated with the Republican Party for the war in Afghanistan and Iraq under George, uh, under baby Bush. And of course, the economy and going good dunk. And the economy went good dunk. Uh, you often punish the incumbent for that. And Obama seemed to have a promise for how to deal with the healthcare issues in America that was sort of a bit of a compromise between the idea of giving everyone free healthcare on the one side and the idea of uh, sort of leaving poor people to just die on the other side, uh, uninsured. So Obama seemed to be this like meritocratic, excellent, judge me as an individual kind of champion for the world. And that seemed to uh, put an end to the idea that we have to continue judging one another by race in order right. to improve. And, and just after he's elected, um, they do surveys of Americans and they say, you know, are race relations good or bad? And they get, I think, some of the highest ever um, ratings from people saying that race relations are really good and at the best they've ever been. Yeah, from black and white people and Asian Americans and Indian Americans and so on. And yet what comes after that is uh, a series of backlashes. Um, 
that 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 basically have led us to this point where where Black Lives Matter defines a major source of influence in America. Its idea is that uh, they don't really show any inclination of caring about the fact that sort of that black professors like Roland Fry of Harvard University, MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, shows that their protests together with patent and practice investigations are are responsible for more deaths than uh, the worst 20 years of lynchings in America from 1882, 1900. They're, they're not changing their strategy on that basis. Um, uh, rather, people seem to be doubling down on the fringes uh, to, to, to some kind of militant uh, 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 black consciousness uh, revival idea. At the same time, the Ku Klux Klan I mean, it itself doesn't seem particularly relevant, but the kind of white supremacist attitudes that it stands for seem to percolate more and more. I've right. I, in the in the 2010 in the in the 2000s, I never heard any white South African say I'm proud to be a white South African. In the last 10 years, I've heard dozens. Uh, mm. It's crazy. So race relations have gone backwards as well, even though they seem to be going forward. So so the last 10 years, I think, have been a period of of major regress on several fronts. Uh, And that's not to say that technological innovation and all that kind of stuff hasn't, hasn't continued apace. But that all leads us up to this catastrophic year. I think 2020, insofar as 2020 was a nightmare, I think it's a mistake to think of it as a nightmare that sort of popped out of complacency or popped out of nowhere. I think it is, I think it's the almost inevitable result. I think if it hadn't been COVID, something else in the next couple of years would have precipitated right. a similarly. So, so here's here's how I'd look at it, right? Uh, you know, series of screw ups. Here's how I'd look at it: is that uh, in a lot of how sort of like the nineteen, the early nineteen hundreds, the I don't know what you call the first decade of a century, anyway. That set up, that put in place the noughts, all of the, the pieces. Noughts. The yeah, the nineteen noughts. Uh, that set in place all of the things that would then cause the catastrophe of the next decade and the couple of and the decades that came after that. Uh, I think I think this decade may turn out to be that. Although it is worth noting that probably the pinnacle, at least um, uh, uh, in terms of like human development and stuff uh, of 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 civilization of 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 all human beings, uh, was probably about 2019 and has just had a little setback this year. But you know. Uh, that was when poverty rates were at their lowest. They were absolute poverty was heading towards sort of five percent um, globally. Uh, the amount of people connected to sort of basic services is increasing. The number of people with education was increasing. The number of people who were illiterate was decreasing. So, in a lot of ways, uh, it was also a really good decade that we just had, uh, and in fact, by some metrics, the best ever in all of human yeah. history. Yeah. No, both are true. And and it's it's worth trying to draw out how how both can be true without just being illogical. So I think a good way to understand it is the difference between the performance of those people who occupy the highest uh, positions of power, the greatest positions of influence, and the performance of people on the ground according to the rules as they are. So I think that the major failures of the last decade have overwhelmingly been as a result of poor performance, of substandard performance by the elites. And the positive effects of the last 10 years have been 
a result of the the rules being pretty good over the last 10 years, partly because they were the same rules that were set more or less uh, since 89 in most places or 78 in China uh, and, and, and since uh, much longer ago in the US and Europe and so on. Uh, and, and as you keep letting, you know, common folk like you and me, uh, operate under the rules of something like equality before the law, something like, uh, you know, if you, if you make it by your own work, then you, then you, then you get some income from it. People operating under those rules uh, generally do, do better and better year on year. So, and, and the point that I'm trying to draw is that, so, so, so average, average, uh, chaps have done really well in the last decade elites have done very poorly and i think covid brings out this this super stark contrast in a frightening way one of the things that i noticed uh for example when i was in the northern free states was that i went to three functions in 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 halls that were chock-a-block full of people and in two of them outside of the children I was the youngest person around. The average age was maybe 70 years old. No masks. Uh, insofar as the virus is ever mentioned, it was mentioned uh, in a derogatory fashion. Outside, the banter was very much like, does this thing really exist? <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's that's one kind of thing to notice. Another kind of thing to notice is Ivo Factor, who I criticized for writing a very poor piece, in my opinion, about Christianity, uh, wrote a very good piece about uh uh, vaccination, yeah. Where he said, "Look, you know, sometimes vaccines have done harm, but we've got here. Here are like ten reasons to think that the vaccines, should it ever come to South Africa, by the time it comes to South Africa, is going to be safe as houses." And the response was overwhelmingly to say, "You know, this is this is a terrible, irresponsible, uh, you know, new world order thing to say that the vaccines have got chips inside of them that are going to help Bill Gates take over the world." Yes. <laughs> so, so this kind of idea, and again, the idea that COVID doesn't exist, and 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 when I was in in KZN uh, dealing with you know rural black white Indian South Africans, a lot of people uh, very eager to act as if you know to say that COVID doesn't exist themselves. So there's this huge skepticism. They don't represent a huge portion of the population, but they do represent the far end of. Uh, a, a massive skepticism at the competence of both right. politicians and scientists who predicted things and, that and, 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 far and the institutions that those people form part of. Yeah. Um, the, the American political commentator Yuval Levin has made the point that what seems to be happening nowadays is that uh, rather than building institutions or becoming part of institutions or staying loyal to institutions, you're getting sort of talented or charismatic individuals using institutions as platforms to launch themselves and usually just damaging the institution in the process. Um, so you get like your esteemed entrepreneurs, as, as you've talked about before, who appear, uh, they take the institution's credibility to boost themselves um, and then they usually trash it by behaving in a way that might get them likes but ultimately undermines the credibility of said institution and then they move on um, to, to, yeah. to do their own thing. Uh, and this is... Christus. Yeah. Right, the grifting. Um, there's a lot of places where this has happened. Uh, I think, I think, in fact, it would be difficult to find an institution where there hasn't been at least a little bit of this going on. Um, 
and it's proven to be quite difficult to resist. And I think that that has been part of the problem with, uh, you know, I, I think I think for me the most distressing thing in in a lot of ways intellectually this year was seeing health officials in first world countries. You know, these like people who are very well educated, mostly well respected, saying things like. Oh well, you know, you can go and protest in the streets and stuff, even though uh, we're allowing no other kinds of, of of economic or social activity, because really it's for the cause of justice, and we've yeah. seen that all all over the world. Um, and even worse, but you can't protest against lockdowns. You can protest yeah. for <laughs> Black Lives Matter or whatever, but you can't protest lockdowns. Uh, because that's too much of a public health risk, and that's a, a really good example. Because those people then they use that all to look uh, to boost themselves and say, "Oh, look, look at how great I am! I'm this magnanimous, wise sage who cares about justice and is part of the struggle for equality." Uh, but it ultimately makes their institutions look stupid because the rules are clearly biased in in, in favor in one direction, um, and that has really damaged health professionals and it feeds into the conspiratorial stuff um the, yeah. the belief that you know vaccines are toxic and evil and set up as a deliberate ploy to damage us in some way of course people are going to believe that if they see public health officials behaving absolutely yeah. terribly or, or in other cases ignoring the own their rules that they that they set out uh what was the guy in the, the uk neil ferguson neil, neil ferguson, ferguson the neil ferguson of it all yeah right he, he he encourages all these lockdowns and stuff and then he goes off to uh sleep with his mistress rather than <laughs> yeah rather than stick right. to the like six feet social distancing rule right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, unless it is so, a very peculiar kind of so question. clearly and, and and also there's been this general thing and I've, I've noticed this especially from the world health organization is no one is ever allowed to have hope no no every story that they put out about vaccines and stuff it's always like well look you know, maybe the vaccine will be ready by the end of the year, but you shouldn't expect it until two or three years hence. And the vaccine won't yeah. set life back to normal and all these things, because I think that there's a belief amongst many um, elite professionals and institutions and that kind of thing that the, the peasants are too dumb. And if you let them have any sense of hope, they'll get complacent. So you need to constantly terrorize yeah. them all. So but else, how dumb do they think badly. the peasants are? Clearly, right. they do think the peasants are dumb because they think that they can... Uh, exercise bias that they can go against their own uh, prescriptions and that the peasants are going to be like well they know best you know i don't yeah, really understand how come some protests them. are okay and other protests aren't but they they're the experts so they must know and the problem is not only you know one one problem is that most people aren't that dumb the other problem is that some people are that dumb <laughs> so so there are <laughs> acolytes of those institutions who will continue to champion their cause and will continue to denounce anyone who exercise exercises the slightest bit of skepticism. For example, I have argued against South Africa's lockdown from about three weeks into it. And uh, I see someone drew attention recently to the fact that the Institute of Race Relations was the first um, lobby group which came out explicitly calling for an end to the lockdowns after, after I think, three and a half, after the first time it was said to be extended. We said it's fine three weeks, but then after that, we, we, we pushed against it. And I think we were on the right side of history there. But I, I know for a fact that for the next decade, there will be those who try to denounce us by equating us with um, people who, who think that vaccines are just delivery systems for 
for computer chips to take over your brain and so on. So you uh, have these. Just, you, just one more thing have, on on that point. Have, um, if you are worried about microchips and your vaccines, you should probably get rid of your phone because that's far more effective at tracking. Yeah, no, for sure. And don't listen. To, and you, you should probably stay away from the internet. If you're listening to this on anything <laughs> other than like a, a very intense VPN connected through a, a sort right. of library computer that you download things right. on anonymously and then put it onto VCR tape, you, you might be in trouble. Anyway. Yeah, if, you, if you want to use a VPN, I can recommend it. Um, I use NordVPN. Uh, we're not sponsored by them, but I wish we were. <laughs> yeah, I used to. Um, I probably will get back into that. But so, but so this is, so I think it's a real, I think that this kind of, you know, there's an age old line that trust takes years to build and it breaks in a moment. And I think that my suspicion is that in 2030, we're going to look back on 2020 and we're going to say, good Lord, humankind was given, was given it on a platter. 2020, 2020 is perfect vision. It's retrospect. You know, the whole idea is that if you look back, you can learn from your past mistakes and you can grow out of that. And, uh, and how many articles have there been? How many think pieces have there been? How many podcasts have there been saying, okay, 2020, let's look back and enjoy that retrospective vision. Let's look back on the last 30 years, the last 20 years. Let's look back on a Pax Americana. Let's see where we've succeeded, where we failed, and let's try and learn from that. I've seen almost nothing of that kind. I've seen a deluge as if busting open a sort of fire hydrant and then standing in front of it, your mouth gets filled and your brain gets filled in with the endless versions of they're evil and they're all bad and we're all good right. and vice versa, depending on who they and us is. It's been the most unreflective year in my adulthood. And, and, I, and, I and, and it. it's, it's the product of a, a breaking in trust, which I think is going to uh, set new rules. And then the problem is once you set new rules, that sort of idea of us having uh, developed on the back of ordinary people's hard work under the previously established rules, which, uh, however poorly the elites or how, you know some some of these did really well, the rules were good enough that we could really develop. I think that uh, we might see a, a great changing in the rules, uh, in to an effect to the effect that ordinary people's hard work ends up sort of having very perverse outcomes. And South Africa right. is just such a case in point. I mean, we're going to start next year with the expropriation without compensation bill being tabled in parliament. And what happens when you when you make arbitrary uh, when you make property rights arbitrary? You don't make it all go away. You know, one of the things one of the books that I recommended to our listeners this year was Hillary Mantle's um, Wolf Hall, uh, sort of late 1500s uh, some of it early 1600s, particularly the reign of, of Henry VIII and Oliver Cromwell, a time when property rights were partly there and partly not. Uh, you know, when the king couldn't tax, uh, he would right, that, uh, initiate that things like transition zone between the feudal economy and the uh, relatively free capitalistic economy of later England. Yeah, and what would the, what would the king do if he couldn't raise enough taxes to go to war or, or sort of? snub the pope so that he could get divorced and remarried and so on he would go around to all the lords and ladies and say you know would you like to make a donation it's just a, a beneficiency is what it's called. Or, a give yes. or give me a loan yes give me a loan and no, also don't ever expect started, it to be paid back yes 
I won't pay back the loan, but just start out with the beneficency. Would you like to make a donation? And you're free to say no. But if you say no, just be sure that you will be tried for heresy. You will be, uh, you will see your lawyers and your servants sort of uh, put to the gallows. Uh, you might see your own personage uh, tried for, for you know, various yeah, you, esoteric and arcane crimes. You know that, which uh, are that land possible. dispute you have with your neighbor, yeah, I'm going to rule in his favor, that kind of thing. And so ordinary people's hard work ends up being, you know, bribing and lobbying and back back slapping and 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 denouncing uh you know being an esteem economist becomes compulsory much in the way that it was in the soviet union you had to tell on your neighbor uh and say that they were secretly a capitalist because they didn't cry when stalin died because if you didn't do that they'd tell on you and uh, then you'd go to the gulag for 10 years you know so 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 the rules of the game can change it doesn't you know i think one of the things people one of the things i try and get across is like Look at mining in this country. The government effectively already did expropriation without compensation on mines. And it didn't completely tank the mining industry, but it did make it much less efficient. Uh, mining houses ended up spending more time lobbying government and more time sort of dealing with militant uh, unions than with exploring. There's been practically no new mineral exploration. Uh, uh, the, the amount of employment uh, if you if you take out the the, the platinum group metal belt in in, in uh, the northwest has has decreased almost by an order of magnitude. Uh, it's been it's been it's been calamitous. You know if if you if you look at the opportunity cost, if you look at where we could have been and versus where we are, it's been it's been very poor. Uh, but you know there's enough value there. There's enough real value there. The feudal patronage network. You know we've talked about how stable that system is. It's good enough that people will keep doing it. It's just that the, the hard right. work that their right hand is doing ends up being undermined by the hard work of, of uh, you know, garnering likes and staying on side right. and, with and, the, and, the enough, power enough, with the left. But enough people enough people sneak through the cracks of a, of a system like that to, to make it wealthy or benefit from that system. You know, they're just really good at playing the esteem game or whatever. Um, yeah. That it gives others hope that they too can strike it rich. Exactly. So I, but, and so, but, but you change that system of rules, you know, in a little neighborhood, it's a problem. You change it across a country. It, it means millions of unemployed people don't get back to work. It means increasing violence. It means, you know, it, it means very material and negative consequences. And you change the rules around the world, which, which just seems to me like a very real possibility to consider. Uh, we've talked about Sino-American tensions. I don't know how it's going to play out in the next four years, and I definitely don't know how it's going to play out in the next decade. But if the only thing, if you know, if you have if you have America uh, papering over the the sort of contradictions in its own policy by just continuing to print more money, the Americans are playing into the hands of the of the BRICS powers and Beijing in particular, who are desperate to shift their role from being an export-driven client state to being one that has its own reserve currency status of a kind, which means it can effectively extract rents from its neighbors and from, uh, you know, right. producer, low-skilled, low-wage producer economies around it. 
so that it can become a, a more consumer-driven uh, economy so that it can, without failing, which it can't continue to grow, uh, and failing to grow economically, and, Beijing will fail to, to hold on to power in, and in, the, and in, in the a meaning. sort of relatively peaceful way that it has. So they want this to happen, and the Americans want it to happen because without looking themselves in the mirror, they're going to keep thinking that you can sort of make promises that are impossible to keep without borrowing trillions and trillions of dollars more every year. Right, and the only way to paper that over is through the Fed printing money. So you know, I suppose that's and, the and, money side of it. And, and this this side. also would would establish a a a bi bipolar world in the sense that there would be two major world powers. And I think um, uh, history has shown that uh, I would argue that hegemonic when you have a unipolar world system, it's usually better <laughs> because uh, when you have two world powers, they tend to fight a lot. Um, and we saw, I think, what what between compared to a, a potential conflict between China and America, um, the Soviet Union versus China, of course, defined decades and started millions of proxy wars all over the place and did all sorts of nonsense like that. Um, yeah. And that 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 was uh, you know that's that's kind of a taste of what would come if it does develop into a full blown Cold War between the U.S. and China. Um, the difference, yeah. of course, this time is that China will be stronger than the Soviets probably were. Much stronger. So it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a gloomy thing. Um, the good side is that, is that I think there is an opportunity for recalibrating what the appropriate sort of radical centrist solutions are to too much of these problems to in other words rethinking you know fukuyama's idea that the end of history has been reached that idea that the end of history has been reached is 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 it's so easy to deride if you if you paint it as a as a prediction you know well now i think everything's just going to get better which is not exactly how we put it in any event but if you put it like this you know do you believe that there is, at least in abstract terms, some form of human organization which is the least bad, which, however flawed it is, is, is clearly head and shoulders better than the alternatives? Put it like that. And I think, I think very few people would deny that we've reached the end of history. You know, most people think that they have an idea of what the best way is to coordinate society. And I think people's ideas, mine included in the last 10 years, must have shifted, must have changed somewhat. I think people must have realized that we all believed things about what the best version looks like, that just were very close to true but weren't quite right. And that experience has tested those beliefs and found them wanting. And the opportunity is then to, to refine the ideas, to improve them, to, to supplement them with, 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 uh, with new thought and, and to gather around those improved and refined versions to address the, the, the failures that have been and, and guard against, uh, you know, future external threats of which you know like a plague is one and, and of which we can be sure there will be several in our lifetime 
Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I th- this is the this is the, I suppose the game that I'm playing here is I'm saying the global financial crisis was uh, an opportunity, but it ended up to improve the things fundamentally, but it ended up getting worse. Obama's election seemed like uh, an opportunity to to really rethink how we talk about race, but in the end, things just got worse. Uh, China's uh, sort of lifting 700 million people out of poverty seemed like a chance to really for them to right. really I mean, rethink uh, the democratic institutions, and it just got worse. It could have and become, South in Africa's, a lot of ways, the world's leading liberal uh, country if it had kind of followed through with those reforms and managed them successfully. Yeah. But it didn't. And South Africa, we had our huge, our grand story of the last decade is that we had Jacob Zuma. We had uh, him coming in as basically the most popular president that the ANC had ever had by some measures. And, uh, and then that going down... The hill and slowly but surely people coming to terms with the fact that what he stood for and what he represented were were not productive policies were counterproductive were ways of you know that his goings on about white monopoly capital and so on were, were just ways for him to conceal his own looting and it looked like we were going to improve and instead we got Ramaphosa who I think you know there's a there's a lot to be said for him that that is good but you know his signature policy remains expropriation without compensation he introduced a minimum wage law in a in in a way that is so poorly calibrated for for our unemployed people who are priced out of work, he he, ugh, and that's just two two things. They, they go on. We have had so many opportunities where they've been the the Arab Spring crisis looked like things would get better, but they just got worse. I think the the thing to guard against is 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 extrapolating from this pattern in the last ten years, the idea that every time there's been a disruption, things have only gotten worse. And so we've got to do that ultra conservative thing of of be like, well, where we are, no more changes. Let's just stay exactly where we are, and bunker down, and ultimately yeah, in retreat words, into little in silos. In the words of uh, uh, of, of um, what's his name, William F. Buckley, stand yeah. athwart history, shouting stop. Yes, <laughs> that's the wrong idea. The right idea is 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 to say. We 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 kept trusting the wrong people, and we need to start uh, rethinking who we trust, and we need to start uh, figuring out, doing a bit of think for yourself, and a bit of bit of bit of exercising uh, a, a real and explicit hunger for for new and productive ideas, and uh, and and give people a chance on that basis. I think I think that uh, you know. This 2020 could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Uh, and uh, in some places, I'm sure this is going to happen. In some places, I'm sure that uh, new, a new consensus will form that is uh, right. uh, that's, and, that's and much I, more geared towards basic human decency, meritocracy, you know. Right. And, and, so, and so in a certain sense, we are engaged in a project of of, of conservation of conservatism, right? We're trying to conserve these good things about the liberal world order. But uh, I think Edmund Burke, uh, the you know the father of intellectual conservatism, correctly pointed out that um, sometimes you have to reform in order to conserve those things. And that's exactly, I think, what we need to do is we take these opportunities to uh, fix the things that are that are a little bit broken, but resist radicalism, and uh, you know find better ways to express liberty and all those good things yeah i want to resist radicalism if it means burning things down 
But if radicalism just means, you know what a, a free radical is? The sort of scientific sense of a radical is, is a particle that splits off from an atom. And, you know, this is how microwaves work, is you've just got these free radicals floating around and they excite uh, in particular water molecules. And the more they are excited, the, the, the more the temperature rises. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, radical just means maverick. It just means, you know, someone, someone who really is on their own team. And, right. uh, and, and I'm all for that kind of radical. And, uh, <laughs> now I suppose I was remembering rereading the, the third, uh, the, the collapse of the third Republic history of France from about 1880 to, you know, when they lose the war to the Germans lose the Alsace-Lorraine to, to their loss uh, against the Nazis in 1940, the total collapse. And uh, one of the things William Scherer argues is that early on in the Third Republic, the radicals were often centre-right. Uh, they were radical more in the sense that I've just described of, of being individualists. Uh, and being individualists in a way that's also, you know, um, opposed to the kind of decadent individualism that many artists were celebrating at the time. So it wasn't individualist as in, you know, damn the family and damn the church and damn, you know, cultural mores and uh, all that good stuff. Uh, it, it was, you know, think for yourself individualism uh, within, within those uh, groups that give your, give your social life real meaning. Of course, it didn't last very long. Uh, the, the radicals did uh, end up splintering, some of them becoming quite hard right and sympathetic with the Nazis, rather Hitler than Blum. Leon Blum was a, was a left-wing figure who came to prominence in the 20s, I think. And uh, a lot of the radicals ended up going very left, saying, you know, rather a workers' revolt than another day <laughs> seeing the rich, fat capitalist pigs get a profit from the sweat good, of my good, own brow. Good example of... Uh, losing losing sight of the big picture um which uh, i i think that it has been one of the things that's happened this year is i i, I referred to it the other day i was i was talking to some colleagues um as like a centrifuge of tribalism where everyone starts out you know sort of kind of in the center when a new issue appears and then as they see who's taking what position and where they're friends are all lining up and coalescing everyone's sort of like a centrifuge the way that it splits things apart into heavy and lighter elements um yeah. everyone sort of goes off into their little bubble and then the barriers of 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 thought close the barriers of, sorry the barriers to thought rise up and there is no more thinking there is only owning the other side yeah you see one of the great paradoxes about this in my view i was i was uh uh, rereading this great piece about race relations, The Uncompleted Argument by Appiah Have a Drink about W.E.B. Du Bois. And uh, W.E.B. Du Bois is the most influential black uh, political figure after the Civil War in America. There's the Reconstruction where it sort of seems like non-racialism might get a chance. That kind of falls apart. Du Bois stands up and says, you know, there is a soul that is split amongst all black people. They all share a metaphysical connection. White people all share a metaphysical connection. And so they are in some sense inevitably in competition. And Dubois founds the NAACP 
and that remains a hundred years later the most influential sort of you know legacy uh, think tank organization in America in terms of race relations. And Appiah Appiah says you know here's Dubois' problem. He starts out thinking that races are biologically defined, that, you know, people of different races have different capacities, different tastes, different dispositions. Uh, and so they have different geniuses, different contributions to make. That's sort of why they're in competition. Uh, black people are really good at dancing, shall we say. White people are really good at oppressing, shall we say. Uh, and then he, he, he pushes back against that idea explicitly saying, no, 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 I don't think race is a biological concept. Uh, you know, I think it's this and that, but Appiah shows that the things that he, he pretends to say at all can't possibly explain his attitudes. And so he must really be secretly holding on to the biological hypothesis. And uh, it's a good idea. Uh, you know, it's, it's a good bit of argument. Um, I think it's itself incomplete because it, it doesn't get to why Dubois was really uh, making the case in the first place. And Dubois' big worry was that if, if he didn't think very carefully about race, he might actually become white. Uh, which is, which is, I think, a very interesting point that we should talk about some other time. <laughs> yes. But, but the but the basic point that that Appiah makes, which I think is really good, is he's like, look, Dubois was clearly a racialist, or you might say a racist. But we shouldn't just write him off for that reason. We should credit him for thinking more seriously about race in his own life than anyone else had done until that time. And I feel, you know, I've often said, you know, we must give the Russians credit for, for being the first people to drop the egg and expect it to bounce uh, in terms of communism. There's something about originality <laughs> which is always creditable. The, I, I am very happy to, in, to engage in debate with people who, who really are thinking on the edge, who are really trying to figure something out, even if they're wrong. And I might be wrong, and they can help me. And the thing is, if you're really serious about the ideas, if someone gives you a good counter-argument, you can change your mind. The people that have always disturbed me, like when I was at school, it wasn't so much the guys who would argue that all white people are, you know, somehow above all black people, and therefore we need uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, laws and stuff to put white people down. I liked having those arguments with people. I would argue the other side and, and I would change my mind about some things and, and, and the people that I was arguing with would change their minds about some things. The guys that I really didn't like were the cheerleaders, the guys who would sort of, there'd be one team, one kind of idea. If anything was said in its favor, they'd say yay. If anything that was said against it was boo. And they themselves were doing it because they knew that they would get yayed and booed for yaying and booing. So there was this sort of you know, there'd be the lead debaters and then underneath there'd be this sort of swampy pool uh, in which some people are seriously trying to grapple with the ideas, but other people are just engaging. The only two words in their vocabulary are yay or boo. They're, that's the currency. I'm yaying to get yays or I'm booing to, to, to get yays and, and to get more boos for those guys over there. And, and what are those people? They're like conduits, right? They, they, they just, uh, you know, it's like an electrical charge. They're just a bit of copper wire that it passes through. There's no storing. There's no computing. It's just, uh, it, it, you just, it's, they, they are the echo in echo chamber. And, right. and one of the great paradoxes is that without the echo in an echo chamber, you know, without the conductor, it's very hard for an electrical pulse to to go very far. 
if everyone who you ever engage with or everyone you ever listen to is like, okay, that sounds like a good idea, but what about this? What about that? Then you, you know, your circle of influence is limited to the handful of people that you directly speak to. You kind of want good ideas to be championed. And and I certainly do that. I, I like to, you know, name people who I think have come up with really good arguments. I like to echo those arguments. Um, so so there's this paradox where if if no one ever echoed anyone else, then no good ideas would ever spread. Everyone would have to invent the wheel themselves. But on the other hand, if everyone just acts like a conduit, like a promoter, like a cheerleader, you know, like a curator, where they're funneling the stuff through, like a pipe, effectively, then uh, the cancer uh, can go from one little part of one little pinky finger to the whole body in the blink of an eye. And 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 this is where I'm into sort of you know radical centralism, individualism, whatever. It's like you know I think everyone kind of has to be. Uh, in computer language, what do you call it? Like a, not a circuit breaker. What's what's the little thing where, a logic gate, that's the term. Logic gate. Everyone right. has to be a logic gate where you get the argument, you evaluate the argument. If you don't think it's good, then you don't pass it through. If you do think it's good, then, you know, there's a critical mass of, of good ideas to it. Then it jumps over from the one end to the other end and then passes on to whoever else you're connected with. Uh, and I think I think that's you know if if you model humankind uh, on the computational metaphor, the the problem with the last uh, decade has been that the, you know we've had an elite small number of people who've played the role of logic gates, and when it comes to political issues, most people just play the role of the copper wire, just whatever comes in, send it along amplify it maybe and use the rest of your energy to be a logic gate in your own family in your own business right. in your own community and we need to to shift that up where where we all kind of play the role of logic gates well that's that's in, i think in, that, in all of our lives that's i think one and of it's the, a strain. Uh, the 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 keys the keys to being actually a good citizen of a free society is doing that uh, that intellectual work whenever you whenever you have the energy to do so um, because it, it makes life better for for basically everyone around you uh, Which ultimately life makes life better for yourself I mean it is a strain, right right but it's like it's right. like uh, you know I don't know if you've just been eating baby food and then you first eat meat then you probably get mm -hmm. a runny tummy and vomit and like you know it's a strain on your system but if you if you develop an appetite for chewable foods it ultimately gives you more uh, <laughs> nutrients to to run and jump and dance and sing and uh, and live a rich and beautiful life. And I think you know, so, I think our metabolisms. I think you know, it'd be good if everyone's metabolisms. Uh, if if we all just got more used to drawing energy from being a critical thinker, which doesn't just mean criticizing. It means you know, evaluating and then passing on the good stuff, criticizing the bad stuff. It's it's got both of those facets to it. Right. Um, so I guess we could say that, uh, in conclusion, enrich your intellectual diet. <laughs> yeah, um, no, but I don't like that. I, I mean, I kind of do like that because, uh, well, I'm so just diet, here with your metaphor. 
<laughs> no, just trying to, diet, try is, to try it out. diet enriching your intellectual diet is like you know if you've been eating from the menu from one menu from one restaurant you know consider eating from five menus from five restaurants and i'm totally with you on that uh you know diversify your diet but i think the thing i'm trying to emphasize is chew more you know it's not about what you eat it's about how you eat we need to stop yeah, swallowing make, make sure to, to thoroughly chew and don't just blend everything <laughs> there we go how about that? Chew. <laughs> chew on and enjoy it savor it there's there's such a thing to savor in a good argument there's such a thing to savor in surprise if you thought one thing and then there's like nicely laid out facts and analysis to surprise you i i it's a it's mm, mm, it's delicious right. and there's also something to savor about like when you when you when you finally recognize that someone that you trusted is is really up to no good and is trying to pull the wool over your eyes you know there's there's yeah. there's a deliciousness to discovering the the knave right no definitely Okay, so I think we're pretty much up to time here. Um, let me change topics briefly by asking you a question. What, which pop song has the most pro-capitalist value add message ever written? Um, it's debatable. I think it's debatable, but I have a very oh, particular man. candidate in mind. Okay, you go, you go. I feel like I've got a good one. So, Hold on, give me a second. Give me a second. I think. No, I'm blanking. You're putting me on the spot and I'm blanking. You go. Yeah, you, you see, it's not easy. But I think that the strong contender for first place is Britney Spears's Work Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> the lyrics are all about how if you want something in your life, you need to work hard for it. <laughs> and it's great. I love it. I like um, that. Which is I why, think, uh, you know, it, it's yeah. such a shame that Britney Spears is unfortunately not well and able to manage her own material because, uh, you know, the world is poor. The world of pop is poorer for it. <laughs> what about, okay, so I kind of like when it comes to just the, the merit of work, but not, you, 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 you mustn't confuse work with capitalism. Hey? Uh, Soviets were very hard. <laughs> if you just want to look at the merits of work, work itself, I think, has its merits. Um, and I think Misery is the River of the World by Tom Waits. I I fell in love with that song when I got my first proper job when I was about 15 or 16. And the lyrics are, Misery is the River of the World, Misery is the River of the World. Everybody row, everybody row, everybody row. Um, and, uh, and it's also got lines like, uh, uh, for want of a shoe, the... The horse was lost for want of a toy. The child was lost for want of a life. A life was lost. Misery is the river of a world. Uh, I'm a big fan of that. I'm also a big you fan know, more on the capitalist this, side. It doesn't sound that uh, that poppy to me, though. Oh, I mean, yeah, you wanted pop. You wanted proper pop. Yeah, you see, what this, about this what about Neil Neil Young, old man? Take a look at my life. I'm a lot like you were. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, I mean, uh, searching yeah, for a heart of gold. Broadly probably falls into 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 pop on on one level but yeah 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 no i that's not a not a bad one either uh that the monkey can climb the more he shows his tail called no man happy till he dies there's no milk at the bottom of the pail god builds a church the devil builds a chapel like the thistles that are growing around the trunk of a tree all the good in the world you can put inside a thimble and still have room for you and me 
If there's one thing you can say about mankind, there's nothing kind about man. You can drive out nature with a pitchfork, but it always comes roaring back again. Misery is the well, river of the world. Misery I like is the that. <laughs> but it, you know, there's there's something there's something there's something pure about um, uh, what's the Britney Spears lyric? If you want a Lamborghini, if you want a hot body, if you want to look good in a bikini, you better work, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. Do you have, this is such a good way. This is such a good send off. Like it's December. We're going on a holiday. Let's just remember. <laughs> I love it, dude. I love that. <laughs> uh, do you have Do you have any recommends? Oh, you start, Nick. You're on a roll. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna be lazy and recommend something I've sort of done um, because because I can. Um, <laughs> and I'm gonna recommend uh, France Cronier on 2020 and Beyond, which is a daily French show special that we did to end off the year. It's a daily friend. Um, it's on dailyfriend.co.za. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've probably seen it. It's just over an hour long. Uh, it's actually probably going to be longer than this episode. And uh, yeah, it's just Franz Crenier and me talking about this year and the next decade. Um, and uh, it's always interesting to hear what Franz has to say, because he's, of course, a very intelligent, great analyst and also our boss. <laughs> so... Do you take a listen to that? It's good stuff. Um, work it, work it, Nick. Work it. Right. Shake, right. shake your moneymaker. <laughs> your turn, uh, Gabriel. What have you got? Yeah. Oh man, I got to say, I disagree with uh, one of the things France wrote in his piece in the Daily Friend today. Uh, but I'll leave that for another occasion. Um, I look forward to listening to that podcast. Though. I'm sure it's great, and I, I encourage everyone to listen to it too. I think that's a very good rec. I'm just looking at Blink uh, by Malcolm Gladwell, author of The Tipping Point and so much else. I just reread most of it uh, with Elena last week. I think it's a pretty stellar book. And yeah, I mean, I, it might be, I've, I've read pretty much everything Gladwell's written, all of his books, almost all of his books. Um, it didn't start out as my favorite, but as I look back, I think the treatment that he gives of those ideas is very gentle, but they're very, very deep ideas that I think he's penetrated to an extent that, that few others have. So if you, if you want a light sort of read over the Christmas holidays, think of that. If you want a light read uh, that's fictional, I can't strongly enough recommend Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad. It was published about five, six years ago. I think it's really... Really fun book, kind of set in the music industry world across five decades in America, going back to the 60s, going forward into the 2020s. And it, it sort of gives a, a really exhilarating, pulsating sense of entertainment and at the same time questions what it is about entertainment that's so dangerous and what is is about it that, that makes it potentially truly beautiful. And I think in her investigation she ends up you know she gets into sci-fi and interesting questions about that but she really ends up uh, articulating some poignant ideas about the esteem economy that i'm a big fan of if you want another recommendation for the christmas holidays uh what to read ren milan's my trader's heart i really think that uh you know he was south africa's most famous writer around the turn non-fiction writer around the turn of apartheid millions of book copies sold of my trader's heart it's a really great book it's a it's a, it's a terrible shame that it didn't become a matrix set work 
in part, one of the things to realize is that Milan, when he was 16, sort of uh, was woke back in the 60s. Uh, first thing he ever wrote was, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Graffiti on the side of some road in Emerentia. And uh, his first political act, in a sense, was to lose his virginity to a beautiful black lady and, uh, and you know, profess himself to be a, a, a lover and a friend of the revolution and so on. And then he kind of outgrew that and, and realized the problems with race nationalism, whether it's black or white, the problems with uh, just taking stuff, whether it's in the name of, of uh, you know, taking for yourself or like Robin Hood says, taking from the rich to give to the poor. And I think that, uh, you know, I suppose especially for white South Africans, he's traveled a journey that so many uh, 60-year-old white South Africans I know have failed to complete but are sort of en route to completing um, and and that others have completed. And, and that white and black South Africans, you know, I think we all kind of have to figure out, if we can, how to outgrow our race as as a framework which defines our character and defines our interpretation of other characters into a position of of really moral equivalence where we look one another in the eye uh so i i think that's a it's a it's it's such a beautifully written book um that i think you know it might it might make you laugh might make you cry it'll definitely make you rethink uh something about yourself and your country so I, I suppose I'll, I'll leave it off on that. Awesome. Solid stuff. And uh, to everyone, um, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year, and all that good stuff. And uh, we shall see you soon for Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree. Um, I think uh, everyone must enjoy themselves as much as they can if you are on holiday. And if you're not, enjoy working while everyone else is away. <laughs> um, yeah. And That's uh, what I'll be doing. Indeed. And uh, keep the flag of liberty flying. Yes. Amen, Nick. Amen. Grr, grr.